So we all long to belong. And when we don't belong, it hurts. They did a study and they found out that the same regions of the brain, there's two places of the brain when we get hurt physically. They found out that when people are online playing a video game and they get excluded while they're playing the game, those same areas of the brain are activated as the physical pain when they're rejected online. Interesting. I'm guessing that you have a story of being excluded in your life. You kind of weren't allowed in. And I'm guessing that when that happened, that was painful. When I was in uh, fifth grade, I was 10 years old. My family moved from uh, Redlands, California to Camarillo, California. It's down in Southern Cal. And it was really the first move that I really remembered that had an impact. And I, I was going to a new school, Los Nogales Elementary School. And at every recess and at lunch, the, boy, the fifth grade boys would all play football. And because I was the new kid in school and didn't know anybody, they didn't invite me in. And I would sit there at every recess and every lunch for weeks watching these boys play the game that I love more than any other game. I love playing football. Loved it. But every, every recess, every lunch, I just sat there. Nobody, I didn't know anybody. Nobody talked to me. I was all alone and I was on the outs. I was like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I wasn't invited to any reindeer games. Sat there. I thank God that I had a male teacher. His name was Mr. Ruby. And one day, um, I don't know why he did this, but he had all the girls go with somebody else, and he took all of us boys in his class onto the grass field to play football. And I got on Mr. Ruby's football team. And I'm like going, now's my chance. And I was a, I was a wide receiver, and we made a play, and I'm like going, I'm just going long. I'm going for the long bomb. And so I took off for the long bomb. Mr. Ruby was the quarterback, and of course he's a man. He could throw the ball a long ways. He let it fly, the long bump, boom, I pulled it in, touchdown, score, yes. And the greatest thing about it was not that I scored a touchdown. The greatest thing about it was that was my end to being accepted and playing football at recess and, and, and lunchtime. From then on, for the rest of the school year, I was a part of the gang. And I eventually I became like a team captain. I became a quarterback. And I started to include other kids that were on the outs like I was. Randy Runnels, my good friend, that nobody would pick. I'd pick Randy. say, take three steps, turn around, and I'll hit you. You know? I mean, it changed everything. Fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. Just belonging for the first time in my new, in my new town. I, didn't even not, I did not like Cameroon when I moved there. I thought these people are stuck up. You know? But that was my way in. My way in. You know, Jesus knows better than anybody our need to belong. And I think it's one of the most fascinating studies of his life. I've, you know, how is it that so many people were attracted to this man? You stop and think about it. People from all walks of life think, why would they be interested in a Jewish rabbi? You know, you had people that were like, violent government protesters like Simon the Zealot who became one of the 12 disciples. This is the kind of guy who put a, you know, a handkerchief over his and, and bash windows in. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. He was attracted to Jesus. You had people that were underhanded in their business dealings like Zacchaeus and Matthew. They were attracted to Jesus. 
You had people who were, you know, because of their diseases, they were supposed to be hidden somewhere, lepers, and they were attracted to Jesus. You had children were, and women were. Women were attracted. They supported him financially. And you had blue-collar people, and you had politicians and big business, and all these different people came to him by the thousands. I mean, the one time he went up on, when he did the feeding of the 5,000, it was really 5,000 men. So you probably had women, an equal number of women. You probably had children. Most theologians think, yes, probably more like 15,000 people. 15,000 people following this guy. And they weren't even near a fast food joint. You know, they weren't thinking, I mean, when I go, don't you think about food? What are we going to have for snacks? We're going to get you lunch. 15,000 people. We don't care. We're just going with them. We just want to be with them. And, and so there is something about him. And, it's, and the thing that is puzzling to me, too, is that he was the most pure, holiest, good man who ever lived. We don't normally associate great, huge crowds being attracted to a man who's never done anything wrong. Hebrews says, We have a, a high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. You ever... I mean, he wasn't the talk show host or the AA leader said, yeah, me too. You know, I know what you're talking about. I've been there. I've done that. Jesus wasn't that. Jesus, when he was with groups of people, he says, oh, yeah, I've done that. He, he didn't do that because he never did it. And still, that didn't turn people off. They were still drawn to him. I want to tell you a story. If you want to follow along, you can open to Luke chapter 7. And the story starts in verse 36. And it's really a story that puts side by side um, mm, exclusion, stiff arm, you know, rejection, and approachability. So one day there was a uh, there was a um, a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He decided to invite Jesus to his house. The Pharisee's leader his name was Simon. And in those days, it would have been an evening dinner. They would have had little lamps out made of you know running on olive oil, lit the little lamp, so, and, and it was kind of open, and so that people from the town could come in. It wasn't just like our houses where it's all closed off, so people could wander into this dinner. So Jesus is there at the dinner, Simon is there, and, and it's nice that he invited him for dinner, but he didn't do a lot of things that one might have done if it was like a really special guest, like they would have greeted them with a kiss, like they would have, because they're dirty, they don't have sidewalks, you know, there's kicking up the dust all the time. They would have washed their feet, maybe, water for the feet. They also may have put oil on the head. Well, Simon didn't do any of that special stuff for Jesus. He just invited him in, had his friends. It's a community evening. And they're sitting there, and they're at the table. They don't sit in chairs. They're leaning, the tables are low, so they're leaning on one elbow with their feet out and just eating, you know, dipping bread and stuff and eating it. And it's good Mediterranean food, Mediterranean bread, real good stuff. And they're talking... And, and, and communicating, all of a sudden, and, and Simon, this woman wanders in. She didn't wander in. She comes in real kind of quietly. It says here, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus, this is verse 37, was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood before him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. And she's a sinner. So you have Simon, who has not gone to the, you know, the nth degree to, to honor Jesus. And then you have a woman who's from the red light district, most likely a prostitute. Earned her money selling her body so she could live. She sneaks, she, she wanders in, and she's got that. She's coming for a very particular reason, because she's got this expensive jar of alabaster. That's where we get the alabaster offering. Comes with this alabaster jar of perfume with an intent. Something has happened to her when she's encountered Jesus. And she just knows this is a man who won't reject me. This is a man with grace and mercy. She knows something about him. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures ever. Because she's standing behind him. Here's Simon who's kind of... And Simon, all of a sudden, Simon starts to judge Jesus. There's an invisible wall between Simon and Jesus because Simon is thinking, if he were a prophet, he'd know who this woman is and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. So a wall goes up between Simon and Jesus, separation. At the same time, there's this, there's this beautiful coming together of this woman to Jesus. And she's sitting there at his feet, standing, and she's just weeping. I mean, can you imagine the scene? You have a bunch of men, and then you have this woman who's a prostitute, and she's just, she's weeping, and the tears are just flowing, and she kneels down at his feet, like, what else do I do? It's, I think it's just kind of a, it's just a heart moment. It's just, she just kneels down and starts wetting his feet. She sees they're dirty with her tears, and she unwraps her hair and starts wiping his feet with her hair. And then she takes the bottle, the, the bottle of jar of perfume and starts pouring its expensive stuff on his feet. And, and, and the aroma of the perfume is just filling the room. I mean, and Simon's got those thoughts of he doesn't know who this woman is and he should say, you know, kind of get out of here. You have, but you have, this, you have this, this example of extreme approachability and acceptance from Jesus. What was it about him that would draw a prostitute to come to him and do this for him? You ever think about that? He's the purest, holiest, most righteous man ever. Yet this woman with a past cannot stay away from him. How do you explain that? It's hard to describe. I, I think it's something that's puzzled me my whole life. Why were so many people drawn to him? But I don't know. If you, if you ever run into people, uh, maybe you've, I've had the experience of people that I regarded as very um, oh, special, dignified, great people, great men, that I felt like, you know, if I talk to him, I'm going to keep it really short because he's got people to see and places to go and he's really important. And what, what's he doing spending all his time on me? And I've had these, these encounters. You know, I can think of three, three men, Reuben, Dallas, and Dave. And all three of those men were guys that I had a really high regard for. And I remember in those situations, each time, each one of those very important men 
made me feel like I was the only man in the room and that all that mattered right then was me. And it was powerful. There was, I've been with other important people that didn't make me feel that way, you know. <laughs> but these three guys, you know, I remember, you know, um, Dallas Willard is a, is a writer that has an impact on spiritual leaders all over the world. He's an, he was the philosophy, head of the philosophy department at USC. He's written, I, he is quoted in books all the time. Some of the, 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 the greatest pastors today, the greatest teachers, he's their man, Dallas Willard. He wrote a book, Divine Conspiracy, that changed my life when I was going, sinking down into a pit. And I read this book, it's like God used what he had to teach, teach the truth to lift me out of that pit. And I had the opportunity one day when he spoke to a bunch of pastors down in Southern Cal. And my wife had to go. She says, I got a question for Dallas. I can't, I can't ask it. Will you ask it for me? I said, okay. okay. So he, he finished his talk and, and I walked up to him and I asked this question. And it was just like, he tuned into me. He wasn't hurried. He wasn't rushed. He wasn't looking this way or that way. He was just like, and I'm like trying to get away because I'm thinking he's too important to take time for me. But he took time and it was like it impacted me greatly. And there's something about somebody being who's so, you know, somebody that you admire so much and respect so much. And yet they're so approachable. That's powerful. And it, it touches you deeply when that person does that. And Jesus did that all the time. All the time he did that to people. So, why does it happen more often? If we're Jesus followers, a Christian means a little Christ. We're supposed to be like him. How can we, why does an approach, being, being approachable, because that's a part of love, how can we be more approachable? And I, I, I believe, as some people have said, one of the barriers, the biggest barriers to approachability is, is pride. Pride says, I'm superior to you, which would obviously push people away. Who enjoys being around a snob? Who enjoys being around somebody who looks down their nose at you? That does not attract people. That repels people. Pride repels. The antidote to pride is humility. And we can be humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says, and he will lift you up. Remember that when we... We were, we were taken from dirt. No matter what, what we've achieved, no matter what kind of degree you have or what kind of skill you have or all the knowledge that you have, no matter where we end up, every one of us began being dirt. We're baked dirt with the, with the presence of God inside of our bodies. And Jesus, the great of, greatest man of all, it says in, in Philippians 2 verse 3, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So Jesus, the greatest, humbled himself. There's a key, one of the keys to why he was so approachable. And you know, this is the son of God. He's God in the flesh, yet he got so low that people felt that they could come to him and approach him. He didn't look down his nose at people, even though he was greater than everyone. And that humility made him somebody that, that people could approach. You know, there, there, were, there was another time that uh, religious leaders were verbally... Now, before it was Simon. He was just thinking these things to himself. Isn't it weird? You know, we talked about awareness last Sunday. If you're going to love, you need to be aware of people. What God is doing around you. And how Jesus always knew. And, and when he had this, this little conversation with, with Simon, Simon had the thought... 
if he was a prophet, he'd know, he'd know what's going on right now. And then Jesus, it says, Jesus answered him. Simon, I want to tell you a story. Which is greater? It's just two men have a, have a they both have like, you know, one, one has a debt of 50 bucks, one has a debt of 500 bucks. The same guy that they owe it to forgives both of them. Which one do you think is going to be more appreciative and more loving? Simon says, well, I guess the guy with the bigger debt erased, the 500 bucks. Jesus said, you're right. The more that you're forgiven, the more you love. He says, and this woman here, he says, he says, I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't put oil on my head. This woman, ever since I came in here, she's been anointing my feet with her tears. And, and instead of, you know, putting oil on my head, she put perfume on my feet. Then she's been kissing my feet. Guess who's loving more? She has. She's been forgiven more. So that was just in his thoughts. You know, Simon had those thoughts and Jesus confronted that. Then there's another time where the people were actually complaining, the religious leaders. They were muttering this time out loud instead of just thinking it. And they said, this is in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's that approachability. What is he doing? He's getting contaminated. He should not be contaminated by these dirty people. Doesn't he know what he's doing? And then Jesus goes on and he tells the story that a lot of us are familiar with, the prodigal son. Real quickly, man has two boys. The youngest one says, I want out of this family. I want my inheritance. So he tells his dad, I want my inheritance. It's basically saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. So dad says, okay, gives the youngest son the money. The son goes off into the far country. He wastes the money again. And here we go with prostitutes. That's actually said in the story later on. The brother says to his dad, he's been wasting his money on prostitutes. He spends his money on wild living and parties and all this stuff. And then there's a famine in the land. He gets poor. He uses up all his money. He says, I got to survive. So he hires himself out to a pig farmer to feed the pigs, which is not good for a Jewish boy. That's an unkosher animal, a pig. So he's feeding these pigs. He's trying to eat the corn that they're eating. He's starving to death. And he comes to his senses one day and he says, what am I doing? The servants of my dad eat better than I do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to repent to my dad. I'm going to tell him, Dad, I am so sorry for what I did. I don't deserve to be called your son. Just take me back as a servant, please. So he gets up out of his dirty... He starts walking back. And the whole time, the father's been waiting for the son to come back home. Before the son sees the father, the father sees the son. And the father takes off running, which is also something that Middle Eastern dads did not do. That was not dignified. You didn't run, and you didn't show your legs. And this father's running, and he's showing his legs, and he embraces his son and welcomes him back with a big party. He says, he's back, he's back. I don't care what he's done. My son is back. That's all that matters to me. He was more approachable than his son knew he would be. And there's another thing about this story that I just learned recently. Something else may have been going on here when the father ran out to his boy. There's a ceremony, a ritual in the Jewish religion it's in the, in the writings called the Talmud. It's called Kazaza. And in Kazaza, it's, it's, this is what happens. If a Jewish son lost his inheritance among the Gentiles and then returned home, the elders would take a clay pot, break it in front of the returning son, symbolizing his rejection from the community, and they would yell, You are now out. You are now cut off from your people. You're not welcome here. And it could be interpreted. 
that the father in this story is protecting his son from being rejected by the elders. He's running to get to them, him first. This is my boy, hands off, leave him alone. He's a part of the family. I mean, Jesus was actively, even aggressively approachable. And, and, and it's just the way that love works. When the love of Christ is in us, one of the things that's going to be happening is that people aren't going to, we're not, we're not going to be rejecting people no matter what they've done. I, I was reading something. I was, my wife and I went to dinner last night and I had a hard time sleeping Friday night. So I got up and probably, you know, I probably should read. I know when you get on your phone, it kind of gets your mind activated again. But anyway, I got on my phone reading the news. I got one of those People magazine stories about Brad Pitt. And, and the, the thing that grabbed my attention about Brad Pitt was um, he was talking about Christianity. And I, I just like, okay, this is curious. And so it's, it says that Brad Pitt and Kanye West have become friends. Kanye West, you know, Brad Pitt's the actor. Kanye West is the hip-hop artist married to Kim Kardashian, in case you didn't know. Okay. So Kanye West, Brad Pitt, they become buddies because they run into each other over the years. And Brad Pitt was saying, yeah, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. He was back in the Midwest. And I came out to Hollywood and I left that. And I kind of, I think the words he said in the article were out of just kind of arrogance. I thought I'd become an atheist. And so I became an atheist. But not really. He says, I didn't really believe that way. It was just just a move you do, you know, because your ego bloated for him. And he says, that wasn't working, so I tried some, you know, Near East, you know, New Age type things, Middle East, you know, Near East religions, and that wasn't working. So he says, I'm kind of going back to Christianity again. I'm looking at it. He says, there's some good things in Christianity. And he says, and my friend Kanye West, he does this thing called Sunday service. I'm like, Sunday service? That sounds like a church service. And so Donna said, I said, isn't that interesting? Kanye West doing Sunday service? And so she gets on her phone, we're driving home, and she Googles Kanye West. And, and she, it quotes Kim Kardashian says, yep, Kanye West is a born-again Christian. And he does this Sunday service thing. And I'm like, wow, really? Kanye West? Brad Pitt? And then I'm thinking... And then I thought, I heard recently, too, that Justin Bieber was helping lead worship at a church service in Beverly Hills. I go, this is messing with my mind. Really, does God really, does he want Kanye West, Brad Pitt, and Justin Bieber to be his boys? Yeah, he does. Well, go get them, God. You know, just open our hearts to people that you think would never believe. I think it's, I think it's fantastic how God takes... I met a pastor. I went to meet a new pastor in our area. Grew up in Oakland. And he's now pastoring a Nazarene church. I thought, I'm just going to welcome him to the family, you know. So I drove and I met him. And he told me, he said, yeah, I grew up in Oakland says, I used to be a drug dealer. Wow. Okay. All right. Drug dealers, Hollywood stars, hip hop, you know, the whole thing. Okay, Lord, just bring them in. 
And, 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 and that's the way Jesus is. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's his heart. So if we're going to love like him, we got to be approachable people. Which means, really, church people, we're not very good at this. If you're anything like me, and I think you are, you can be judgmental. And I, I'm, I, I listen, do you, there's a word called metacognition. Metacognition is knowing what you're thinking about. And I, and I was as practicing metacognition this week to know, what am I thinking about? I'm going, there are too many judgmental thoughts in my head. I'm like, okay. So, this, this is something that we have to deal with. We need to grow in, okay? It's not saying we're okay with sin. We're not. But it's like we're not identifying that person with their sin and saying that's all you are. We're saying that sin is a virus in your life. That is not the best you. You were not born to be that way. And I know there's something better for you. And Jesus has it. Let's talk about it. Whatever you've done. So I want to give you several things that will help us grow in being approachable people. And, and so first of all is this. is to humble yourself. Humble yourself. Let's read this together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Just value people. And no matter where they are. You know where? I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I struggle with this. When I get on my bike and I ride down the bike path towards Stony Point to Food Max and I see the homeless encampment along Highway 12. And I'll tell you, the judgmental thoughts can come to my head. And it's like, I have to, God, pray, God, help these people. Help my attitude. You know, I got to pray. Because I just, I just don't, so I got to humble myself. These people matter to God. We need to elevate people around us. And start with recognizing who we are and who they are. The second thing is realize forgiving grace. Just like that woman did who anointed Jesus' feet. Let's read this. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Do you ever consider what you would be or where you'd be without Jesus forgiving your sins? A lifetime of guilt, of shame, cover-up, denial, self-medicating to cover up pain, pride, estrangement from people in your life, lost joy, you know, separation from God for eternity. I mean, we need to live under the sense of, man, I live under the mercy of God and I am so grateful. Had he not broken through in my life, I would be a total wreck. I would have no future. My family would not be what it is today. I would not be the man that I am today. He has changed my life. I owe him everything. So realizing the forgiving grace, just like that woman did who just poured her life out to Jesus. Number three is practice non-condemnation. Non-condemnation. Let's read this. Woman, woman, has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So this is a woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus wasn't there to condemn her. Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's, he's not here to condemn us. Most people, if they're honest, will tell you, I've done things wrong. And they have guilt. They already know that. Jesus is here to save us, to get us out of that pit. Last thing, love your enemies. Let's read this together. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Wouldn't it be amazing for every person that you ever felt in your life was an enemy that you could actually have the possibility of having a a relationship with them, of things being turned around, of things getting better. When we love and we pray for and we bless and we do good to difficult people, even hurtful people, we change. I do this every time I have somebody I interpret as against me. And it never fails. Every time I've done what this verse says to do, I change every time. And I have people in my life today. I have former people that were my enemies who are not my enemies anymore. And that we actually have been able to have a relationship. It's amazing. I, I want us to pray. I just think, I think the possibilities for this are, to me, they're stunning. You know, that we can be approachable people. That people in our community, people you work with, people in your neighborhood would feel like, you know what, I could talk to them. I know what they stand for, but they're not going to shun me. They're not going to, you know, condemn me. We can just talk. And so may it be. Let's, let's just close, close your eyes and we're going to pray. I just want to lead you in a prayer. Think about your life. You know, I, I don't know, maybe you're a person who thinks uh, that you can't approach Jesus. And I want to tell you today that you can. He's, his arms are wide open. The Father in heaven is someone who runs to people who turn to him. He protects people from getting beat up by those who want to reject them. God is an accepting God. And maybe you just need to open your heart today and say, Jesus, I I open my life to you. Just please forgive me. Come into my life. You need to tell him that today. Just do it. He's waiting for you. And I want to tell you something. If you do that, there's going to be a party in heaven. The angels will rejoice. All of heaven waits for people to receive the love of Christ. And maybe today um, you, you have some pride issues and you just need to humble yourself. Would you do that? No matter what you've achieved, no matter what you know. To say, hey, God, I remember I'm, I'm taken from the dirt. I need to humble myself and, and, and lift others up and, and show, the, show their value, no matter who they are. Homeless people. People completely addicted. Drug pushers. No matter what it is. Let's humble ourselves. And maybe you need to re- realize again in a fresh way the forgiving grace of God. Where would you be without Jesus? And just thank him today. And, and to ask God, God, give us a non-condemning attitude toward people around us. Help us to have your attitude toward the lost, to the people outside the family of God. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to love our enemies that even our enemies would feel like they could approach us. Lord, show us if there's somebody that's coming to mind that we need to deal with. We need to start loving them and blessing them and doing good to them. Show us that face, that person, so that we could start to do these things. 
And Jesus, we just want to thank you today that you welcomed us into your arms. You welcomed us into your family. You welcomed us into heaven. You welcomed us to a new life. You transformed us. You don't care what our past is. You don't care how we've messed up. You welcome us, and we thank you. God, we pray that you give us the flavor, the aroma of Jesus' approachability. And that aroma would, would scent the air of our workplaces and our neighborhoods, wherever we are. May we give off that perfume, I pray. And may we look good, Lord, and help us just to love. Help us to have your love in our hearts that would overflow as we experience yours. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you.